Well, good morning. Uh, as Trent said, my name is Tyler Holloway. I recently joined the pastoral staff here at Heritage Park, um, but this morning they gave me the face mic, so I guess I'm off super secret double probation or whatever it is. Um, but I have the privilege of continuing in our Questions for God series. Uh, and this morning, as Trent said, in case you were you know, wondering what the anticipation was, he lets you in on the secret. We're talking about uh, eternity, what the Bible has to say about our eternity with God, or as we more often referred to it, heaven. And I think this is a really important question for us to consider and to dig into, uh, because in my experience and in my life, I'll just say it that way, uh, I think we often maybe wonder about heaven and have some questions intellectually about what it's going to be like, but often we don't really long for it in our hearts. We're not really like yearning for heaven. And this is a problem because the Bible grounds a whole lot of its commands for obedience and a whole lot of its encouragement to persevere to us in a expectation for and a longing for heaven. So if we lack that, if we don't have that in our lives, we don't have a vital resource that God has given us to live the Christian life. Not that this morning we can answer every question or that the Bible will answer every question that you have about heaven, but I think in our time together this morning, the goal is just to begin to grasp the presentation it does give us of eternity and why that matters, not just for one day, but today as well. Before we do that, if you would join me in prayer once again. Father, we love you and we trust you. We thank you for the word that you've given us, Lord. Just pray that you would help us to understand it, that as we crack open the pages of Scripture, that you would uh, have it breathe life into our souls, that we could walk out of here with our hearts just captured by what you're doing in this world and where you're going to take it and where you're going to take us. Now, if you're willing, I'll just invite everyone here to take a moment and pray for yourself that this time may be profitable to you. And again, if you're willing, just take a moment and pray for, for me that I can be helpful to you this morning. Father, we love you and we praise you and we give you this time. Do with it what you will. Amen. Well, I think a good starting point for us is to ask the question, why do we sometimes not find ourselves, or do some of us not find ourselves excited about Heaven. And I think the environment we kind of grow up in really has not helped us here. So I did some really sophisticated theological research this week, and I typed heaven into Google uh, and just saw what popped up, which was a lot of fun. And I, I, I you know, spent a lot of time perusing the pictures and got some of the best ones for us this morning. Uh, there were dozens and dozens of basically this, just clouds, very nice, fluffy, bright clouds. Uh, and if it wasn't a picture of that, it was something like this next slide that basically looks like they ripped off The Wizard of Oz. Um, but I do think it's worth, like if you look to the left out of your heavenly tour bus, uh, you should note that all rainbows are double rainbows in heaven. Um, so we have that to look forward to uh, when we get there, I guess. I don't know, but if that's your thing. Uh, but this is basically what we see over and over again. When somebody depicts heaven, it kind of looks like this. And it's not just the images we see. Maybe it is because it's all the images we see. I think it often, when we think about heaven, this is the first thing that kind of pops into our mind in our mental eye, mental image. And so we think, okay, there's that. And again, I'll just speak for myself here. For a long time, I had a hard time getting excited about eternity there. Like I could intellectually grasp some of what the Bible says about no suffering, no pain, no death, no sin, no brokenness anymore. I, that sounds so great, but something inside of me always went, but why does it have to be in a place like that? That just seems like it would get so boring. Uh, I, I don't know about you. I just don't want to spend eternity in a, pro a precious moments catalog. Like that's not what my idea of fun is. 
and I think we kind of land there. Like when I was a kid, uh, my parents would plan vacations for me and my brothers, and they would tell us, hey, this is what we're going to go do, this is where we're going to go be, and we're going to have all these activities. Uh, and a lot of the things that they would plan for us, really as a six-year-old, just wouldn't excite me. And of course, because you're six, you don't know how to hide that, so your parents can see that it's not exciting you, and they're trying to like, no, no, you're really going to enjoy it, you're going to love it, it's going to be great. Really, they were mostly right. Like when we would go and go on the vacation, it would be fun. It would be a blast. They did a great job planning it. But in the days leading up to that, it just didn't create an anticipation in me. I wasn't going home to my calendar and like, I don't guess six-year-olds have calendars. But if I did, it wasn't like counting down the days like sometimes we do now. There just was no anticipation. I think that's how I view heaven. And I think from my conversations with other believers, a lot of times that's how all of us look to heaven. Like we see the promises of God in Scripture, and we say, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't really understand how it's going to be that great. I don't really have an idea what God wants to teach us about heaven, and so I guess we'll just experience it when we get there. But it doesn't really make a difference for us today. We're just trying to make it through today. But this robs us of what God has for us, because the Bible points us to heaven to help us orient ourselves today. But to get there, to understand that, we need more than just clip art depictions of heaven. We need to understand what the Scripture presents about how eternity fits into God's plan of redemption. It's not just a final escape from a broken world to something better, but it's the final and complete restoration of all that is broken. That eternity is not just something that we get to one day, but eternity changes everything about how we live today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation 21. Uh, we're going to read the first, few, uh, first eight verses of chapter 21 and then skip down for time to chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the sides of the sound booth back there. You're welcome to grab that and take that as our gift to you. Um, But before we jump in, just a a little bit of context about what we're getting here, because we're coming in at the back of John's vision. He's winding down. He's received this great revelation from God that essentially is, how does this world transition from where it is today to where it's going to be from eternity? And he's related a lot of stuff throughout the chapters of Revelation, but just prior to where we get He's seen the resurrection of the dead, and he's seen the final defeat and banishment of evil, sin, death, wickedness, to be gone from this world forever. And then after that, kind of to conclude, God gives him this just brief glimpse of what comes next. And this glimpse that John has and that he relates to us isn't enough to satisfy all our curiosity, like you kind of mentioned earlier, but maybe enough to just kind of root the hope of heaven into our hearts. Let's read chapter 21, starting in verse 1. There John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither Shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I jump down to where he picks up in uh, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. So what what is it that John sees here? Well, the first thing, and probably the biggest thing to note, is this isn't really the the depiction that we expect when we come to it. I don't think it's what we first imagined, because what we don't see, what John doesn't relate, is kind of here at the end of all things, God's people getting out of this place to go to somewhere better. It's not them leaving the earth, like boarding the last light out of town just in the nick of time. No, what John sees, what he relates to us, is a city coming down out of heaven to earth, a city that heaven comes to earth. That when, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray that, Father, your heaven come on earth like it is in heaven. It wasn't just about a longing for this earth to be made right, to be more just, to be a little bit more like heaven. It was a longing for this day to actually become a reality. What we see is God's salvation project has never been about a rescue by evacuation, but John describes a rescue by invasion. Not us going somewhere to be with God, but God coming here to be with us. And this is the desire of God from the very first verse of your Bible. And the way John has crafted his account of this vision is for us to understand that. Here's what I mean by that. So if we had this vision, like if we were in John's place, and we're going to write down the things that we see in for other Christians, other believers to understand heaven, you're going to write down probably one of two things. One, one, what was most important to you, what really struck you, or two, what you think the questions that other people are going to ask you will be like. So you're going to probably record the things that we ask typically when we start thinking about heaven. What are people like? What are their bodies like? What are their relationships like? What is it like to actually walk with God? They remember things of this earth. But John doesn't answer any of those questions really, does it? He does something different. He starts talking about building materials and the dimensions, things that we may find kind of like intellectually interesting, but not really essential for understanding what heaven is. It's almost like you have a friend that just finished a book you're interested in maybe picking up and reading, and you ask him, hey, can you tell me about that book? And he starts going, well, the dust jacket was this color, and then it kind of had this kind of image cover art, and it had this many pages, and uh, the font was, uh, you know, a nice Times New Roman, but a good size, so uh, there wasn't too many words on it. And you just want to be like, that's not at all what I'm asking you about. Like, stop talking and tell me about the important things, the character, the plot. Did you enjoy it so I can make a decision if I want to read that book or not? So we get frustrated, I think, with John because we come and we, we want him to answer our questions to tell us what we think is important, uh, but he goes a different direction. But John seems to have thought this was important. One of my professors in seminary had a really simple word for uh, biblical interpretation or a simple rule. It was just this. He said, papyrus was expensive. What he meant by that was papyrus was the writing material of the ancient world that John would have used. And it's not like today where you can just run down to Staples or Home Depot and pick up like boxes and boxes and boxes of it. And we just you know, write our groceries list and we toss it away when we're done with it because it's, just, it's disposable. Paper's you know, almost free to us. But for John, in his day, it was costly. It took effort to get, it was very fragile, so you had to pay attention to it. So really, you didn't write much down in the ancient world. One, you probably couldn't write. Two, even if you could, you only wrote down the things that were absolutely critical for you to communicate to others. And when you were going to write something down, you made sure that you knew what you wanted to say and how you wanted to say it before you wrote it down because it was just so costly to start over again. And so if John's spending this effort to do this, these are the things that he wants us to know. 
And more than that, if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture was given to us, every word of it, by the Holy Spirit, and is useful for teaching and correction and rebuke and encouragement in our lives, then we believe that these words were given to us by the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about heaven. And so we have to ask the question, why? Because when it jumps out to us, it doesn't really seem like it's that life-changing. I think this is where uh, people that are really, really smart and spend all of their time like studying the Bible and writing commentaries can be really helpful to the rest of us that don't do those kinds of things. Uh, because they look at this passage and they say, hey, you know what's really interesting about how John has framed his depiction of heaven for us is that almost every detail that he takes the time to write down is alluding back to something that happens in the Old Testament. Even more than that, a whole, whole, whole lot of them seem to be parallel to what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation of earth in the Garden of Eden stories. And here are the parallels that they point out to make their case. If there's something that interests you, you can go back and read basically the first three chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation and kind of see what they're pointing at. Um, but they say, you know, John has seemed to line these things up. Most obvious, Genesis 1 talks about the creation of earth, and in Revelation, John's saying, well, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Both reference the sun and the moon, day and night. Uh, there's a river running through the middle of the Garden of Eden and of the New Jerusalem. Both accounts speak of being face-to-face with God. After the fall, Moses tells us an angel was placed at the entrance of Eden so that no one can enter in anymore. But here, uh, John takes time to note that there's an angel at every gate, just like there. But the difference is, he reverses it and says that the gates are never shut, that all can enter freely. Eden was ruined by that which was unclean and accursed. And John takes the time to note here that nothing unclean, nothing accursed can ever enter here. That's a lot. I mean, in just a few verses, he kind of piles on these references. Uh, But you can still be skeptical. I mean, how can you really know what John intended you to think about uh, when he wrote this? But I think there's one more detail that for me is an unmistakable connection that kind of took me from being, well, maybe this is what John was thinking, to saying, no, this seems to be what John was doing. And it's what Trent referenced earlier. Uh, Look back, if you would, with me to chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. There it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street, uh, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What we see there is John, in having this vision, he notes that he sees the tree of life, like definite article V, a specific one. The same tree that Moses tells us existed in the Garden of Eden, and it was lost to us with the fall. And the crazy thing here is that the tree of life actually disappears completely from Scripture. It's never really mentioned again from Genesis 3 until we find it again in John's revelation of what he sees of heaven and eternity. You see a couple of references in uh, Proverbs where the author says that wisdom is like a tree of life, meaning it brings uh, life to our lives, but never a reference specifically to a particular tree. But John here is saying, he's not just seeing a new city with no uh, prior connection to anything that's come before, but he's seeing a transformed garden. In order to help us understand heaven, John's not trying to give us blueprints of what's to come, but he's trying to throw our minds back to how things started. That thousands of years after Moses wrote Genesis, John is closing out the Bible with the exact same picture. But Moses wrote to tell us about our past and what we had lost and why the world is the way it is now. John here is writing to tell us of our future, what we have to gain, and how the world will one day be. In order to fully grasp this, let's back up and make sure we understand what John is pointing us towards. Right, so Moses begins Genesis 
with the account of creation. He says that God created a good world, and he created man and woman in his image, and placed them in a garden to dwell with him. There's this amazing phrase in Genesis 2 that says, God walked through the garden in the cool of the day, just like out for an afternoon stroll like it was nothing, in right relationship with man. The first scene in the Bible tells us that this world exists for God to dwell with man. But in Genesis 3, we have a second scene where we decide to go our own way. That God, by nature, He gives of Himself, He gives life and love, and He created us to do the same. But instead, we turned inward, and we decided that we'd take rather than to give. We wanted to love ourselves first and foremost rather than others. And so when this happened, it broke and fractured all of creation. That Scripture tells us that our relationship with God was broken, relationship with others was broken, and death and decay entered into this creation. And so Moses describes in the first chapters of Genesis, for his readers and for us, why the world is the way it is. He tells us that we are created by a good God, and at our core we're meant to glorify him and enjoy him as we dwell with him in his creation. But we traded that existence for a chance to glorify ourselves and to enjoy our own desires, even though they always leave us empty at the end of the day. It would make sense if this was kind of the end of the story, if God just said, well, I didn't work, I'm going to back up. But if we continue to read what the Old Testament says, that's not the story we get at all. Rather, God promises to enter back in. That God says, I'm not done with creation, I'm not just going to let you guys clean up your own mess, but I'm going to enter in, I'm going to come and deal with what is going on. And this is what begins to play out in the Old Testament. You know the stories that God calls Israel and he makes them a promise. What does he say? He says, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell with you. And he gives them this land. He gives them the promised land that they live in and eventually the tabernacle is built and then the temple, uh, which the scripture says is where the presence of God actually physically dwelt on this earth. And so you have a step back towards what was lost at the garden. It's not complete. It's not full. And if you know the Old Testament, you know there was still separation. Uh, only one person could go into the presence of God one day a year after performing a lot of rituals because there was still sin that needed to be dealt with, but you had the God living in their midst. What happens? Again, we keep reading and we realize you have the same story and you begin to get the same results. But what does Israel do? Israel, even though God lives amongst them, says, no, we'd rather have it a different way. We want to go a different path. And so eventually, God's presence leaves the temple and Israel is cast out of the promised land. They're exiled, just like we were originally from the Garden of Eden. It's a replay of Genesis 3. And really, this happens over and over again in the Old Testament. Like, if you try and read it, if you've had a Bible reading plan, you're trying to read the Bible in like 90 days or something like that, and you read the Old Testament, I guarantee you at some point you'll feel like, I feel like I'm reading the same story over and over again. And that's kind of the point. Like, God wants us to see in that, that the story of Eden happens on repeat all throughout the Old Testament. And we should begin to realize that it doesn't matter how many chances God gives us, that there's something inside of us that will always reject God. And when he comes near to us, we always pull away from him. But even in the face of the continued rebellion that we see in the Old Testament, God continues to promise that there's coming a day that he will once again dwell permanently with his people. And this is the day that John sees. All the promises of God in the Old Testament This is their final realization. What does he hear declared from the throne here? That God will be our God and and we will be his people and that he will dwell on earth among us. This is not a partial reclamation of Eden like uh, the temple where there's still distance, there's still separation. No, this is fully that. That God's presence is readily accessible for everyone to draw near. John sees a new creation, a new earth that looks a whole lot like the first earth 
was at the beginning, that man and woman are in relationship with God with no more pain, tears, sorrow to spoil it or come between us, and that evil is completely unknown, and John tells us can never enter back in. And I'm going to pause here to make two side points that I think kind of come up as we read this that are important to consider as we, we try and wrap our minds around what Scripture has to teach us about heaven. And the first is this. Is this a new heaven and a new earth that John is seeing in Revelation 21? What's the connection to this earth that we're currently in? Is it completely new or is there some continuity, continuity? Um, and at first reading, I think it seems completely new. That's where we, our minds first jump. After all, he talks about it's a new heaven and a new earth and the old has passed away. It seems to uh, indicate like a destruction of that and a new, fresh creation. And a lot of people land there. I think there's kind of evidence that people say, no, I think that's what God's going to do. Uh, but I'm not so sure. I think John may be pointing us in a slightly different direction. And I say think because, again, Scripture here is not definitive, uh, but if you read it in light of the whole Bible, I think that there maybe there's a little bit more going on. And what I mean by that, or why I land there, is two things. One, I think when we talk about new things, oftentimes we don't mean it's completely brand new to us, right? Like we can talk about uh, a new car, even though it's used or something along those lines, but it's just new to us. It's different than what we had before. Um, if there was somebody that was liberated from slavery or bondage, we may talk about them having a new life or being a new man. And it doesn't mean that they're a completely different person. It means what comes afterwards is so different than their life up to this point that we can only define it, describe it as, too, as new. And Paul uses an analogy similarly in Romans. He talks about this creation being liberated or set free from its bondage to decay. I think that's a weird image to use if all of it's going to pass away for something completely different. So it seems like, no, there's just a new life that's going to be given to that creation. But second, and maybe more why I land here, that these same terms are used of us when God brings us new life in Christ. That we're called a new creation. God says the old has passed away and that the new has come in us. And he's not referring to we're a completely different person than we were before physically. It's just we've been transformed inwardly so that what comes afterwards is completely different. And so that makes me wonder if what John is seeing here is a great renovation and transformation of the earth rather than a replacement of it. Second, one of the questions that people come to when they think about heaven, uh, and we actually received a lot of them online when we were pitching this series, was, will we remember this world? Will we remember this life? Will we remember people in it? And I think, even though Scripture doesn't you know, have a, a chapter and verse that says, no, we can point to this and say definitively, yes, uh, it seems, I think, to indicate that we likely will. Uh, and for two reasons. One, because we do see Jesus after his resurrection. He remembers his disciples. He remembers what came before. And so if our resurrection is like him, like Scripture teaches, then we would likely have our memories as well. And second, it just seems to fit with what God's commands to us are more. Like in the Old Testament, when God calls his people, one of the things he repeatedly commands is stop what you're doing and remember what God has done for you. That they're commanded to take like weeks off of work just to throw a party and celebrate what God has done in their past. And I think at least part of what heaven is going to be is going to be just that, that we get to hear the stories from others and we get to share the story of our own life about what God has done in us and how he has brought us to himself. I don't see any reason that's suddenly going to change and we'll not remember what God has done for us. And so we wonder, what will heaven be like? What are we going to do when we get there? And the Bible doesn't give us an itinerary or a lot of details for this. It just gives us a brief glimpse, an image to plant in our hearts. And I wonder if, if that's almost the point, that God has given us an image to let our imaginations just wonder at this and to marvel at it rather than just think about these facts that we know. What will heaven be like? 
Well, there, there we will know life like it's supposed to be, like it was meant to be, life like it should have been from the beginning, if not for our sin that entered into the world. That everything that's good in this world that God has given us as a gift, there we will experience it perfectly. The things that you enjoy, meals, nature, time with loved ones, there without a tinge of bitterness, regret, anger, all of God's gifts, enjoy towards fullness. We were created to enjoy God and his gifts, and it's by doing that that we'll glorify him forever and ever. Not by becoming an angel, taking harp lessons on a cloud somewhere, but by becoming more fully and truly human than you've ever been before. By becoming exactly who God created you to be, to experience life as God intended you to have it. That's, I think, what heaven is going to be like. And we just fill in the specifics when we get there. There's one final question, I think, that John raises that's important for us to consider. Because the repeated, well, it's this, why is this time going to be any different? I mean, what do we learn from the Old Testament? Time and time again, when God draws near to us, I run the other direction. There's something in me that makes me rebel and turn from God. And the short answer John gives us is that the people here are different. In verse 7 of chapter 21, if you're there, you can read it, or I'll just read it out loud. John writes this, The one who conquers will have this heritage, which that means that he's going to receive in and live in this city. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, we don't have time to think about all that Scripture also has to say about hell today as well, but just suffice it for our purposes to say this, that the Bible says that eventually the people that want nothing to do with God, God gives them over to that. He says, if you don't want me or my blessings, you can go that way. And they never have to deal with him or his gifts ever again. If we just look at these, this passage on the face of it, like it's easy to pick which one we'd choose. Right? Like no one's going to pick door number two in this setting. But the problem is that if I read this passage and I'm honest with it, I begin to realize that I check a lot of the boxes in that second list. I've been cowardly. I've been faithless. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not an adulterer, but if I take seriously Christ's command or his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that if I have lust or anger in my heart, then I'm about the same. I've had a serious problem. Okay, I think I'm okay on the sorcery one, uh, but I did read Harry Potter and kind of liked it, so 50-50. I've been a liar a lot, time and time again. See, I realize that I belong in that list. I don't belong in this city. Like, I, I would just bring my failures, my junk, my sins into it. What hope is there for me? Can I be one who conquers? What does that even mean? Well, John uses that term, those who conquer, people who conquer, a lot in Revelation to refer to God's people. By that, he doesn't mean that they conquer or overcome anyone, only that they're united to the conquering lamb, Jesus. See, Jesus is how God has moved decisively and definitively to deal with what is broken inside of me. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stepped out of heaven to take on flesh and enter into my brokenness, my uncleanness. That in John's gospel, he begins with saying what? That the Word was with God and the Word was God, and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That once again, God's presence comes into this earth, not in a room in a temple in a far-off city, but in a person that walks and talks and teaches people what it means to live as a son or daughter of God, to live as a citizen of a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, this kingdom. More than that, he does miracles, yes, to show his power and to validate his message, 
but they're more than that. John's gospel calls them signs. And his miracles, Jesus was for a moment, from one instance, peeling back reality to show us what life would be like without the effects of sin, without the curse. He raised the dead. He made the lame walk. He gave sight to the blind. He healed sickness. And those whom he healed, their families, the people around them, just for one moment got a glimpse of this reality that John is seeing. But then we, we did what we did all throughout the Old Testament. We rejected God's presence. We took him, we took Jesus, and we hung him up on a cross. But what the people that crucified him didn't know is that Christ went to the cross willingly to die, not as a martyr, but as a perfect sacrifice. But he would take my sins on his shoulders. It was God himself offering himself on my behalf. And then three days later, he'd come out of the grave, conquering death so that those would look to him in faith experience this life, both in part now, but fully one day when this vision and revelation comes to pass. It's by placing my faith in him that I can become one who conquers. Because I recognize that my own sin, my own part in adding to the corruption of this world, and I'm unable to undo any of what I've brought into it, that I can look to Jesus and trust only in him as my hope. That his spirit, when I do that, his spirit does what Jeremiah talks about and enters in to give me a new heart to transform me into someone who is suitable to live in this kingdom. And so two things to walk out with. How does this matter for today for us? Well, first, if you've never trusted in Christ, the most important question tonight or this morning is not what is heaven like, but is what are you going to do with Jesus? We're not here to try and scare anyone into belief by reading about heaven and hell, but only to issue the same invitation that God himself does. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Only in him are you going to find what it is that you're looking for in this life. See, Jesus, when he came, he preached a really simple message. He said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. This is the kingdom that was talked about there. And the gates are open to us if all we will do is enter in. We try in so many ways to find fulfillment, to look elsewhere, to find what we're looking for. But no matter what we look to, ultimately, it just won't live up to your hopes because the things of this world were not meant to bear the weight of your soul. St. Augustine had it right when he said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've walked in here with, what you've done in the past, because ultimately it's not even about you. It's about what God has done for you through Jesus. So grace is available to you because of that. All we have to do is turn to him in faith. As an old hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel our need of him. And secondly, for those of us who are in Christ, what makes this more than just interesting Bible trivia that we can know more things about God? I think it's one of those truths that we need to dig down deep into our hearts and minds because this will come a day when God may use this to keep us going. This isn't just a quaint picture of uh, puffy clouds and bright lights. It looks like it'll be nice when we get there, but some days it helps us put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> Have you ever considered Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 4.17 uh, has a phrase that sounds so patronizing when you first hear it. He's looking at the difficulties of this life and looking at the, in his life and our lives, and he goes, says that they're light and momentary troubles. And I, I read that, I'm like, they don't feel light and momentary. They're very real. I've only been here three months, and I'm just beginning to hear stories of those of you in this room. But one thing I know is that the things that some of you have been through, the things that you're going through right now, feel anything but light and momentary. And if that was all Paul had to say, it'd be like that friend that's no help that comes over and hears you complaining, it's like, that could be worse. You know, it's like, that's not helpful, but Paul has something that's actually great to teach us here because he's not talking about an isolation. Let's look at his full thought, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 
16 to 18, I think it'll be on the screens. It says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory in this that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul himself was no stranger to a really hard life. Like We'll get to this when we pick back up in Acts in a few weeks and start going through a little bit of his biography. He can stand up here and go toe-to-toe with any of us and play in the one-up game about the difficulties that we've faced. But Paul looks at those in his own life. He looks at those in the lives of the people that he's ministered to and says, these troubles, yeah, they're real. They are very real. But in light of what comes next, they are only momentary. I can go on today because I know how this all ends. I know that everything that God allows to come into my life, to come into your life today, is only to prepare you to dwell with him in this coming city that John sees. And you can look at that. You can look at that and say that there's no way I can imagine a world in which this situation, this event, this thing that I went through that happened to me, this relationship that fell apart, this betrayal that I felt can be anything other than a tragedy. And when we come up on that, the Bible doesn't give us a clear cookie-cutter answer. that We just go, well, there you go. That explains it away. No, it invites us. It points us to a good God and tells us how it ends, and it invites us to trust in him. I wonder if this is what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians 2 when he tells us that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That even now, in the wondering and confusion and tension of wanting to believe that this day is coming, but not understanding how it can ever be as good as Scripture actually says it's going to be, that God is using that tension in our hearts and in our lives to make us into the people that he wants us to be to dwell in his presence. Just one final thought. The Bible talks a lot about two distinguishing marks of a Christian. Uh, it's, it's love and hope. Love, because if we come face to face, face with this God who entered into our own mess in spite of us, then we can't help but to love those we come into contact with. And hope, hope because we know this is not the end. If we root our hope in eternity, it can truly impact how we see everything in this world. For the nights that are amazing when you enjoy a great night, perfect meal, you're laughing with friends, or you just have your breath taken away by a mountain or an ocean or whatever it is, that your mind thinks, I cannot imagine how it would get any better than this, that a voice in the back of your head should just whisper, you can't even begin to imagine how much better it actually gets. And then when we're, we're on the opposite side, when everything has gone wrong and night seems at its darkest, that same voice can remind us that God himself who promises to be the one to wipe every tear from your eye. And as Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They're not even worth comparing. If I'm honest, I can't imagine that either. But this is the promise of God. So may we live in light of it.